If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Britain and, and England specifically are, are places where uh, sooner or later a revolution will happen. That's the perception in France uh, because of the instability of its institutions inherited from the Glorious Revolution. That's the perception in France where, on the contrary, the monarchy is uh, absolute, uh, manages to tame all types of dissent and oppositions. That was Renaud Moria talking about Anglo-French relations in the 18th and 19th centuries. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Earlier this year, the York Festival of Ideas held a special event that brought together historians from France and Britain to speak on a number of topics all connected to the theme of Europe. Our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn, headed up to the event and she spoke to Renaud Moria of the University of Cambridge and Fabrice Bensimon 
of University College London, who are both experts on Anglo-French relations in the 18th and 19th centuries. While this period may seem to have been dominated by conflict between the two countries, the reality was far more complex and interesting, as the discussion reveals. The first voice you'll hear after Ellie's will be that of Renault. You're both here at York Festival of Ideas talking about Franco-British relations. Um, why do you think it's important to look at British and French history from this transnational perspective? Um, I work on both France and, and, and Britain, and I think it allow, doing comparative history in general, com- that is to say looking at a country, not just at your own country, but also at a foreign country, allows you to uh, distance yourself from inherited national myths. For instance, w- what we could call exceptionalism, the idea that your country's history is unique, different, singular. Uh, to give you an example, in Britain that would be the so-called uh, Our Island story or the Whig history. In France, it's the idea that, uh, I mean, the notion of, uh, of uh, the hexagon, the perfect shape uh, of, of, front of the French territory, which is a myth, obviously, but it's, it was very powerful in the 19th century and, and beyond, this idea that France is uh, uniquely diverse and uh, really is, has no equivalent in the world. So I think it's a very healthy, uh, almost on a political sense, uh, way of thinking, but it's also very productive to look at, at, at two countries in order, again, to look at similarities and, and really actual differences rather than just... Uh, without rethinking, reproducing things you're taught a, 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 as a kid at school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. In France, it is a very strong, uh, very powerful sort of national narrative, usually called le récit national, the national narrative, or even le roman national, the national novel. And indeed, uh, uh, studying the history of a foreign country does help you debunk myths and uh, consider what is taken for granted as not taken, I mean, not being taken for granted. Is it, working on a, on a different nation um, does help you also, from the viewpoint of the history of this country, uh, it does help you be um, uh, astonished by things more easily than when you've been sort of brought up in the culture of the country you're working on and uh, and that, well, everything is 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 part of your uh, cultural background. So it's uh, at the same time, comparative history is very difficult. Uh, it's difficult because, well, the language is a, a major obstacle, but also the structure of uh, of the records, uh, bibliographies are are different. And although uh, comparative history has been praised a lot uh, over the past uh, hundred years, it's not so often done. It's not so often, uh, I mean, if you watch carefully, there are not so many works that actually do comparative history. And one reason is that it's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult task. <laughs> to compare, the problem is to find uh, comparators, things which, which can be compared. Uh, sources, uh, primary sources, uh, evidence is, is a real issue, as Fabrice said. For instance, uh, to do with the two world wars, uh, many uh, archival uh, repositories in France have been bombed and disappeared. But, or, but more specifically, um, if you think about the history of the states, which have compiled and gathered these archives, because they are different, you don't necessarily have the same type of, uh, of document. So if you want to, say, work on the customs, 
Well, uh, in, in England, they were, uh, the, the, the way they're structured and organized in the archives are very different from France, where they, they were privatized. Uh, in England, it was a state institution. Which factors have pe played a really key role in how the two nations have interacted with each other in the 18th and 19th centuries? Well, I think, um, well, of course, war and peace have played an important part and a, a crucial one. And for a long period of time, the history of the relationship between both countries was uniquely uh, seen from this perspective. I mean, when they had been allies, when they had been enemies, when they joined forces in, uh, in the 20th century, when they uh, collided before and so on. And probably one of the uh, one of the uh, the changes over the past uh, thirty or forty years, with the rise of social history, with the rise of cultural history, has been to focus on um, other type of uh, interactions between uh, France and Britain, uh, like migration, uh, like trade, like the circulation of political ideas, which uh, Renault was referring to like intellectual exchanges, like um, uh, different types of connections that are not just diplomatic or state relations, but uh, I mean, both Britain and France have so many forms of exchanges and have had some uh, over a long period of time that these forms are now being scrutinized in a more uh, systematic way. And, Obviously, a lot, a lot, an awful lot is still to be researched. Yeah, and uh, even more traditional types of history, such as the history of diplomacy or, or war or, or trade, uh, have been uh, considerably revised following the, those changes which uh, Fabrice was uh, alluding to. For instance, uh, war can be... I mean, war was also a very productive way of... of, uh, of uh, exchanging. Um, my current work is on prisoners of war. So uh, I'm looking at these people as cultural mediators. To give you one example, um, uh, there was a, a Edward Gibbon, uh, the very famous 18th century uh, historian uh, he, um, and philosopher. He wrote, uh, his first book was actually written in uh, copied uh, in it was written in French because the guy was actually educated in French rather than English which is not very well known and secondly the person who wrote he dictated basically the book to a, a person who was a French prisoner of war on parole in Petersfield uh, in Kent so uh, it's through that that medium that 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 he expressed uh, that that his text was written and then circulated and there, there are plenty of other examples uh, prisoners of war marrying english women or uh, or uh, in um, in uh, in porchester or winchester or edinburgh uh, the same happening uh, in france uh, in dinan in Brittany, with english prisoners marrying uh, french women etc trade as well i mean the even the distinction between war and trade is very complicated uh, because trade is a continuation of war by other means uh, in the 18th century. There's a constant practice of, uh, of tariff, uh, tariffs wars. Um, but uh, it, traditionally, historians have looked at official trade. So they, they said, well, actually, France and Britain were not really uh, major. I mean, they, they were trading with each other, but because of this competition, I mean, they were not exchanging that much. But actually, if you look at illegal trade, smuggling, for instance, then you realize that there's a whole... Uh, new area of exchanges which have were going on for for centuries and have continued since. What about the role of migration in more traditional forms than prisoners of war? Mm. 
Um, well, migration is a is also a, a fascinating field, uh, and it does, in ways, shed light on current issues re- regarding migration. Uh, for 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 example, I've worked over the past few months on Calais. Calais today is seen as a uh, a bone of, uh, well, a place for tension because people want to get into Britain and are barred from doing so. If you think of the, the post-1815 period, Calais was mostly a place for entry to the continent for British uh, workers, or British, well, British visitors, British aristocrats, British uh, members of the, uh, of the middle classes, but also British workers. For example, in Calais, there was a very strong community of lace workers who came from Nottinghamshire. Thousands of them settled in Calais. And the reason they did so was that uh, being in Calais, they could avoid paying duties to sell their goods on the French market. And they could also avoid paying smuggling, which had a cost, which came at a cost as well. So, And as a result, Calais became a town where a significant proportion of the population w- was British and transformed the lace industry. And these migrants in different sectors played a key part in the, uh, in the takeoff, in the industrial takeoff of, of France. So migrants, although their part is seldom acknowledged as such in the, this grand narrative as was, we were refer- referring to, uh, do play a, a large part in the development of, uh, of, of countries. So it sounds from that like war, cultural exchange, migration, trade, they're all very interlinked in the way that France and Britain interact. Would you say that's right? Absolutely. Um, I think, and this is a dimension which has for a long time been uh, uh, overlooked. Um, Besides migration, we can think about what historians call mobility. So not necessarily settling in a place, but going back and forth. And so there are many other groups which were daily traveling across the channel, for instance, uh, fishermen or packet boats. Uh, packet boats uh, were invented in the late 17th century. Uh, they were transporting uh, uh, the mail, but also horses and travelers. Uh, and uh, I studied a company which was uh, based in, uh, in Dover, which was uh, originally created, but founded by uh, French Huguenots in the late 17th century. So they settled in Dover, but kept their family links in Calais. And through for, for more than 100 years, they were just trading between the two sides of the channel, the two coasts. So um, this is just one of many other examples. Privateers, I mean, they ha- of the Channel Islands, they had families, family on both sides of the channel. They spoke both languages. Uh, they were actually able, depending on um, who they would meet, like if they would meet a ship of war from, uh, from England, they would, uh, they would uh, display uh, they, they would show them a, a license or a passport, an English license. If they would, uh, if they met a French customs customs uh, revenue uh, ship, they would show them a French passport. So they were very shrewd and able to play this uh, dual national belonging, so to speak. So, how important has the relationship between the two countries been in shaping national identities in each? Well, in, in the 18th century. Uh, uh, France was used in British discourse uh, so as to help define an identity as a as a nation uh, against the the Catholic expansionist uh, absolutist uh, features of the French uh, of the French system in the in the 19th century I I think we get to a different uh, a different approach where 
France is often seen as a very unstable country. And at a time when the British elite is trying to uh, argue that its system is, uh, is superior, the, uh, the contrast between, on the one hand, the succession of regimes, uh, revolutions, uh, empire, uh, restorations, uh, other revolutions, and so on in France, and uh, on the other hand, the stability of the British constitution. It's a very strong argument to say, well, our system is proving to be to be to be the right one, and this is uh, this is used against those in Britain who are asking for a change: uh, Democrats, uh, Chartists, uh, later on Socialists. They're they're often um, they're often answered that we we have an overseas example of what's going wrong. Yeah, I, I mean. I- I fully agree with what you were saying, but the very category national identity um, for the 18th century at least uh, should be used carefully because what do we mean by the nation in that period is something which is very interesting and we have to be careful not to uh, project back into the 18th century uh, something which was really invented in the late 18th, early 19th, or even later centuries. So uh, for many people, what mattered uh, was not necessarily the nation, but the locality. For instance, what foreigner might have meant, uh, a very common uh, use of the term foreigner was someone who lived outside your parish. Uh, in England, that was very uh, uh, well known, in, including in the 19th century. You had fights between villages in France as well. Uh, you know, fights or, or ritual, ritualized fights through sports uh, or, or football uh, later on. So um, defining oneself, oneself as French or English depended on the context. Sometimes it wasn't really crucial. And I'm thinking also about cross-national alliances, for instance, fishermen from Normandy, uh, from Dieppe in Normandy. They really couldn't stand those from, uh, from Dunkirk, which was also in the French national territory, but they were their competitors. So they preferred to ally themselves with those from Harwich or Dover. So again, they, they, and they would uh, play down na- the nation in those uh, petitions they wrote to their own state. They said, well, we share a lot with these people across the channel and we don't want to hear about these burgers from Dunkirk. So you could kind of trade off your national identities, use them when they were beneficial yeah. and ignore them when they weren't. I would argue that, that, that this is a very situational discourse. It's not something which is reified, which doesn't change over time. It's actually contextual. It depends on who you're talking to, the situation, uh, and it's not necessarily deeply uh, felt uh, uh, sentiments. Fabrice, you, you spoke a bit about how ideas of France as a chaotic country informed English ideas of national identity. Can we see um, the flip side of that, how ideas of England were used in France? Well, uh, it changed a lot uh, according to, to periods of time. For example, in the uh, if you take the mid-19th century, um, in Republican circles, uh, England or Britain is presented as, on the one hand, uh, a, uh, a monarchy where the aristocracy has strong power, which in France has been... Uh, has been uh, limited by the by the revolution, and on the other hand, Britain is seen as not a promise of economic prosperity, but rather as a dehumanizing future in terms of the way it's uh, 
uh, and well, uh, transforming towns and factories and and workers into a, a modern uh, proletariat. And uh, another another uh, uh, item in public discourse is Ireland. Uh, Ireland, for a long period of time in the 19th century, is used by uh, those opposing Britain in France as an example of uh, British uh, the uh, British rule and the British absence of uh, disrespect for liberty. Uh, if you, a figure like Daniel O'Connell, uh, the Irish uh, nationalist leader, is a very popular one in in in, uh, in the 1830s and 1840s in France, and he's popular. On the one hand, with ultra-royalists, people who are uh, uh, Catholics and who think that uh, Catholicism in Ireland should be uh, vindicated. And at the same time, he's, uh, he's also adopted by Republicans who see O'Connell as opposing uh, the anti-Republican uh, state. And then in a later period of time, you have the first attempts at internationalism, which are uh, uh, interesting. If you think of uh, the first working men's international, 1864, it begins as an association between French and British workers, saying, well, uh, we are being opposed against one another by our governments, by our employers, whereas we have common interests we should stand for. Let's organize together. And that's very early. I mean, it begins in the 1840s and it takes shape in, in the 1860s. Yeah, just a, just a quick uh, comment on the 18th century. It's interesting because the perception in France, uh, the perception of England is that England is a, uh, a riotous uh, country. Uh, it's, uh, it's the place where uh, you, you've got very, very well-known riots, such as the Gordon Riots in London in 1780. Uh, or uh, such of a riots in 1709, or Wilkism, the radicals. I mean, so basically, Britain and, and England specifically are, are places where uh, sooner or later a revolution will happen. That's the perception in France uh, because of the instability of its institutions inherited from the Glorious Revolution. That's the perception in France where, on the contrary, the monarchy is uh, absolute, uh, manages to tame all types of dissent and oppositions. It's interesting that from the from the French Revolution onwards, the image completely changes, um, mm-hmm. and 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 we and and then we get to the nineteenth century, where which uh, the situation which Fabrice just described. But even even then, if you for example in the eighteen thirties, Tocqueville visits Britain. He goes to Ireland. He goes to he goes to England. He travels around, and uh, he's a, he holds a, a travel diary, which was published much after his death. And basically, what he's saying is, the revolution is going to happen. He's, I mean, it's soon after the, the reform crisis of 1830-32. Uh, it's soon after the swing riots in, in 1830. There's widespread rioting against the new poor law. Mm-hmm. And, it, well, it, it, can't, it can't go on for much longer. And at the other end of the, of the political spectrum, you find someone like Engels, who goes to Manchester as a German, a German uh, young uh, son of a manufacturer. He goes to Manchester in 1842, and his conclusions are fairly similar. There's going to be, there's going to be a revolution. And the, 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 the idea that Britain is a very stable country uh, for good only... only um, is only adopted uh, by most visitors from the 1850s. Uh, 
the fact that Britain stood aloof from the 1848 revolutions, the fact that there is rising economic prosperity, uh, the fact that Britain appears as one of not just the great powers in terms of uh, uh, war among them, but also in terms of the its economy, which is proving to be uh, a source of major wealth. All of this um, is uh, systematized from the mid 19th century. It's a, it's a gradual process in the transformation of its of its of its image uh, overseas. How significant has the Channel been as a border? Um, has it been viewed? differently than it might have been if it was a continental land border? Yes, it's a very good question. And there, clearly, comparison uh, shows differences between uh, Britain and France. Um, in, uh, in, uh, in Britain, clearly, all the way back from the 17th century at least, there is this notion that the water itself belongs to the British domain. So it's part of the British territory. So there is a, a legal theory behind that, the idea that England is uh, the sovereign of the seas. So uh, the, the, the border with France starts on the French coast. The channel in between is English, hence the name, the English Channel. And so this is based on a, on a number of arguments. For instance, the Channel Islands, which uh, uh, were part of the Duchy of Normandy. And the King of England is still uh, the Duke of Normandy. Therefore, the channel is actually just a river, an English river, between English possessions on both sides in the Channel Islands, and, and Normandy still is, is considered to be English, even in the early 19th century, according to these uh, official uh, claims. Um, and then in France, on the contrary, from yeah, the middle of the 18th century onwards, there is this idea that the border, the French border, stops where the water starts. So, for instance, you will, which is why the French called the, the Channel La Manche, not La Manche de France, not the French... Channel, but Louis XIV um, in the late 17th century would actually insist that the channel should be called the French Channel, not the English. So, uh, so there is this major difference between uh, clearly I, we can't deny that uh, the fact that Britain uh, is a series of islands, uh, a set of islands, uh, explains some things about its history by comparison with France, which had many. Uh, uh, neighbors on the continent. But at the same time, for instance, there is a in England, uh, a tendency to, for instance, present England itself as an island, whereas England is actually uh, only has also a landed border, <laughs> a couple of landed borders with Wales and Scotland. So, and, and uh, so, I think this is quite important to underline. So, in which areas of Franco-British shared history do we see conflicting narratives, particularly, um, and which do we see the same narratives on both sides of the Channel? I'm not sure that now um, the, the the main divides or the main uh, disagreements are uh, between uh, French and British historians or French and British uh, fields for research. Um, uh, from what I observe in uh, conferences or in publications, on the one hand, there's still a lot of uh, insularity. I mean, the uh, it's true that uh, British publications... Take, uh, they are not often translated into French, so it's the, the diffusion of British research is very slow. Um, you get uh, very important works on British history that only manage to get translated 20, 30, 50 years after they've been published in, in England, and they're still a minority. And uh, to some point, you get the same the other way around. At the same time, um, if one thinks of... Uh, 
French history, there's been quite a lot of uh, uh, new approaches that have been initiated by British historians. If you work on the uh, the Algerian War, for example, or uh, or even the the, the world, world War to resistance, for for example, when I was, I mean, 20 years uh, ago, uh, when you studied the resistance in France, there was no mention at all of British uh, agents. I mean, the resistance was a French. <laughs> a French enterprise from a, a sort of Gaullist uh, uh, national uh, perspective. And, and uh, so interactions uh, and common exchanges do uh, occur. They take time. And uh, to some point, uh, probably today, um, the main rifts are not, are not so much national in terms of uh, historical writing, as uh, maybe ideological or approaches. I mean, do, you, do we study the country from above and uh, its uh, grand uh, uh, narrative and major uh, national figures? Or do we take other ways of studying uh, national interactions? Yeah, um, there are many ways to, uh, to approach this question. One of them is... Uh, uh, as Fabrice was just saying, methodology. Another one is uh, the type of objects which objects of study which historians in both countries uh, prefer to uh, to focus on. And another one would be chronology. So, uh, for instance, uh, the French Revolution um, in France remains for modern and contemporary historians one of the key. The Divide, yeah, uh, it's, it's it's the it's the it's the turning point in, in 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 even in the way we define historical periods. So 1789 uh, is the turning point. In Britain, 17, I, I teach British history. Uh, of course, no one denies that the French Revolution was important, but it's not the key moment. The key moment in British history uh, would be uh, the Reform Act uh, or uh, the, the abolition of the Te Test Act. Uh, so the 1830s, late 1820s, early uh, 1830s. So, and, and then there is the question, I mean, French historians tend to maybe overemphasize the, not the significance of the French Revolution, but its impact uh, across the world. Where, uh, Definitely, it had a very important impact in Europe. But British historians will say, well, what about the American Revolution? It was quite important as well, wasn't it? So, and this is where it's not a point of disagreement. It's just a point of a, a, a differing emphasis being put on events which no one denies uh, were important. But uh, I think French historians might benefit uh, from trying to pay more attention to the importance of the American Revolution. And... More recently, there's been actually attempts by neither French nor British historians, but American historians, to uh, to try and, and draw the connections between those two revolutions. Uh, for instance, the circulation of revolutionary ideas across the Atlantic through sailors uh, between the American Revolution and the French Revolution, and later on to the Caribbean. So uh, there is this uh, uh, this trend to uh, to more global history, which also uh, is something which happens in both countries. But um, it's starting to pay off. Uh, for instance, if we're thinking about empire, I think it's also something which traditionally was a difference between France and England. In Britain, there's been a, a long history of studying empires. In France, it's more recent. And uh, what I find particularly exciting is those uh, uh, studies of trans-imperial or cross-imperial 
manifestations if you look at Pondicherry in India or places like Newfoundland in North America or the West Indies. Those places where both empires overlapped, uh, were intertwined with one another and where you had like, very fruitful and, and creative economic and cultural exchange. So this is a new area of research where basically two traditions are meeting. That was Renaud Moria and Fabrice Bensimon. You can find out more about the York Festival of Ideas at yorkfestivalofideas.com. And you can read a written version of this interview in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also inside this month's edition, we have articles on Viking battles, the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, medieval Europe's unholiest monk, and a whole lot more. Look out for our September issue in all good news agents and in our many digital formats. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. And now it's time for this week's History News with our website assistant, Rachel Dinning. A team of marine archaeologists have discovered the lost crew of an 18th century Dutch merchant ship. Around 250 people were on board the Roosevelt when it sank during bad weather off the coast of Kent in 1740. Now, for the first time, their bones have been discovered among the wreck. Mark Dunkley, a marine archaeologist for Historic England, told The Telegraph that the findings were highly significant, like finding an underwater Pompeii. He added, It's rare to find a lost crew on a shipwreck. The wreck of the Roosevelt was first discovered in 2005, and archaeologists have been acting quickly to excavate the site after a recent survey revealed the ship was in danger of being destroyed by shipworms. In other news, an 800-year-old coffin that was on display at a museum in Essex has been damaged after visitors put a child inside it. Those responsible lifted the child over a clear plastic barrier and into the stone sarcophagus, causing a chunk of it to fall away. The family group were caught on CCTV, 
but ran off without reporting the incident. Conservator Claire Reed, who now has the job of repairing the coffin, told the BBC that museum staff were shocked and upset by the incident. She added that the coffin is repairable and will be going back on display as soon as possible. Plans are now in place to completely enclose the coffin in the future. Meanwhile, a scrap of fabric from a dress worn by Bonnie Prince Charlie has sold at auction for £5,250. It's believed that the fragment is from a dress worn by Charles Edward Stuart during his legendary escape from Scotland in 1746. The framed piece of material was accompanied by a handwritten note that said the cloth was given to Prince Charlie for his disguise as Betty Burke, a servant woman. It was sold by auction house Leon and Turnbull in Edinburgh for £5,250, far above its sale estimate of £1,000 to £3,000. OK, well that's about it for today. Our next episode is going to be released next Tuesday because Monday is a public holiday here in the UK. Do make sure to listen in then. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.